welcome to the show, Dr. Wilson. Welcome back to the show. We're happy to have you here today to shed some light on the Zika virus. Well, thank you, Sammy. It's my pleasure to come back and discuss this issue with you. I think I'd like to start by asking you where this virus came from and why we hadn't heard much about it before. Yeah, so Zika virus, we've just started hearing about it, but it actually has been going around for a while. And the problem why we haven't really heard anything about it was that it really wasn't considered as having caused that much trouble before. Um, we did not see previously any real connection to things like microcephaly and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah, I want to talk about those links. How was the connection between Zika and microcephaly first appreciated and now Guillain-Barre, that, that too? There are two versions or strains of this virus that had been previously circulating. And the virus itself is, is related to dengue virus. It's carried on the same mosquito as dengue. And that mosquito also happens to be now also associated with uh, chikungunya virus. And so I think that all these viral-related illnesses that you know, are transmitted through this vector seem to be now spreading a lot. The mosquito certainly has a very wide range of transmission and where its habitats are. So I think that that plays into it a wee bit. But what struck everyone and what got this all really in the limelight is that in Brazil, and this was mostly in the northern part of Brazil, but they noticed a very large increase in the number of microcephaly cases. And so normally in the country before last year, it was usually on the order of about 100 to 145 cases a year, which is relatively low. And actually, I think it's lower than a lot of other places. But then all of a sudden last year, they had a major surge in microcephaly cases. We're talking now up to around 4,000 or so mm -hmm. cases. And then Guillain-Barre syndrome is basically an immune reaction to having a viral infection infections where the immune system starts attacking your nerves. And so there, that's another type of neurological consequence of having a viral infection sometimes. But it's associated with a lot of different viruses. But because of this huge increase in the number of microcephaly cases, they started looking at other types of things that might have caused it. And they were taking blood samples and everything. And it looked like there, were, there seemed to be a correlation also with many of the fetuses or infants that were suffering from this microcephaly or neurological damage, in many cases, they were actually aborting as well because of, of the severity of, of the illness. And they found that there was active live Zika viral infection, not only in the mother, but also in the infant or the fetus. And so as a result of that connection, they started thinking that, oh my gosh, there might be something going on here. How strong is the evidence linking microcephaly and Zika virus infection? So the, the strength of the evidence when it first started uh, last year, and the cases started coming up in around September or so of last year, where there was a noticeable rise in the number of microcephaly cases. And at the same time, all of last year, there was an increasing incidence of Zika viral infections. So the connection between the two in the beginning wasn't very obvious because anytime that you have an infection that a large group of individuals are affected and then that same population is also being affected by another malady, in this case microcephaly, you have to worry about the fact that it might not actually be due to that 
new infection but and that it's something else. And so the beginning cases, there was a hint of it and there was actually a concern because it seemed like the microcephaly cases were confined to infections that were occurring in Brazil. And so, of course, anytime that you start seeing a correlation like that, you say, oh, we got to worry about it. And, and when the correlation is so severe in, in terms of the potential connection, if it's an obvious possible connection, you want to be better safe than sorry. So everybody was saying, hey, you know, beware, beware, and which I think is appropriate that they actually uh, sent out a lot of caution about don't plan on being pregnant at the same time that we have these infections with Zika. And if you have an infection with Zika and you are pregnant at this time, you should you know, have close monitoring and, and go to the medical facilities and make sure that you can maximize the outcome from it. And so, and it turns out now that they have, at the time that they start seeing this correlation, there was a new study that was just published, the New England Medical Journal, that essentially enrolled patients in, in September. They had women who were clearly suffering from a, an infection and had a rash that was like what was associated with fecal infection. And those individuals were then monitored for pregnancy outcome and, of course, test to see if they actually were Zika positive. And it turned out that in the cases of the Zika positive women who were actively infected during their pregnancy, there was a marked increase in the number of microcephaly cases as well as other neurological problems so the, and developmental problems. So two of the fetuses, for example, out of the 42 that they monitored ended up actually aborting and not all of them at the time of the publication have completed the pregnancy yet, but at least the ones that had showed signs by ultrasound um, that there was definitely abnormalities present. And none of the ones who were Zika negative had a problem. So there's clearly a, probably a connection here. And it's not uncommon that when you have an active viral infection that you have to worry sometimes about the effect that it might have on the fetus. And, that, and it looks like the strength of the evidence is building. Uh, of course, they really do need to have more samples uh, than that they had before. So I think they enrolled 88 patients and 72 of them had active Zika infections. And then they were able to monitor and take care of and see, you know, 42 of them. And I think the, the evidence now is very clear that there's definitely, not all of them were affected, but a good 30% of them were. And so I think that now the evidence is building and it's going in the direction unfortunately, that there is a connection. And so I think the warnings that went out, I think they're legit, and I think that we should pay close attention. And this study, they provided no explanation of how Zika leads to these abnormalities. Um, not in this particular study, but there have been other studies now that are coming out. Um, one in Science recently actually um, was published, where, and there was a couple other studies where they're now showing that Zika virus has a propensity to affect um, neuronal cells. So it does apparently affect them to the point where they either outright kills them and the ones that do survive end up, you know, being small and not able to really grow very well and that sort of thing. So I think that, that it's building that, yes, it has the potential to actually do this. But, of course, these studies are done 
outside of the human body and they're done in tissue culture and things like that. But the connection, the fact that yes, the virus will have a detrimental effect on those types of cells. And then of course, if the virus has access to the fetus and then it might you know, have a propensity to affect the fetus. And you have to bear this in mind that the individuals who get Zika infections don't usually have that bad of symptoms, you know, so that many, you know, usually they survive. So there is, of course, routine um, bear uh, syndrome that that's associated with an, an antibody or immune response against the, the viral infection. But certainly the neurological outcome and the, the bad outcome that you see in the case of fetuses indicate that there seems to be a direct effect on the fetus and while it's being developed. So this is, you know, it's troublesome because the Zika infection is going to go around, just like dengue and, and chikungunya and all of these infections are spreading a lot. And so I think that the caution here is that if you're pregnant or you plan to be pregnant or your sexual partner um, might be pregnant, then you have to be worried about it and you need to take special precautions to, to mitigate that. I don't think people need to like panic totally. But certainly, there's a lot of efforts now moving in the direction of, well, let's get rid of all these mosquitoes, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest pushes right now, especially considering that Zika and dengue and chikungunya and all these, you know, really problematic disease transmitting vectors such as these mosquitoes that are doing this, seems to it been targeted trying to cut down on the mosquito population and they're hoping that that will help. How are they cutting down the population? Well, well, of course you have fumigation type of scenario where you're actually killing the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. There are also a large number of trials where they're trying to use genetic engineering to kill the mosquito population. So in these cases these are basically genetically modified mosquitoes which will end up killing their offspring. They design it so that the males will infect the females and the females then will not be able to propagate. They won't have viable offspring. So, of course, there's a lot of worries there too because if you do something along those lines, what will the effect of killing off a large, huge population of insects do to the ecology? And so there's some worries there, but they're still moving forward with that. So there's actually a company now that is actually doing a number of trials and they actually have some ongoing ones in the Americas. So, uh, you know, and, and I think the more it spreads and the more there's, you know, concern about some of these infections, I think people are going to be wanting to do more of it along those lines. And could you tell us a little bit more about the condition of microcephaly and what it means for the development of the child? Essentially, you have a much smaller brain. I mean, it's actually quite remarkable. And there's different degrees of this. So there are some degrees where the fetus never even makes it to, it dies very early on. But there's also others that die very shortly after birth because it can't survive. And it really depends on the severity of it. You have different levels of function, but essentially it's an incredibly smaller brain and whole cavity, the whole head actually looks really, really like half the size of a of a normal head. And of course, developmentally, they're kind of almost vegetables in, in many cases. They have very limited 
motor function and, and response to their environment. It's, it's actually kind of sad. Yeah. I think that some countries might be considering asking women to delay childbirth. Is that happening? Yes. There certainly has been recommendations made along those lines, particularly in some of those South American countries. They've recommended that, that they postpone at least, and that they use protection to prevent getting infected. And certainly if they are infected, to definitely take all precautions not to get pregnant. Now, there's no evidence, though, that if after you've had an infection and, you know, you no longer have active viral population, that that has any effect on uh, your risk for anything after that. So that that connection is, there's nothing to support that. Okay. So it seems to be only an active infection during pregnancy that right now people are, are worried about. This is not the first time that we've had to deal with viral infection and potential for having severe outcome. Certainly, cytomegaloviral infections actually are also known to have bad outcome during a pregnancy. In most cases, however, most women have already been exposed to cytomegalovirus when they're kids, and so having an active cytomegaloviral infection during pregnancy is usually very low risk because they've already been exposed. There's no risk anymore. So I think this is another one of these cases where, well, maybe once everyone, the population has gone through, you know, having a Zika infection and, and most Zika infections don't, in fact, most people don't even know that they have had that infection. It, it's mild. It doesn't really do much to you. You might get a little bit of a rash, but you, you eventually get over it. And it seems like you might have titers. Some, a couple of studies have shown that, that you could have titers, you know, for about 10 months or something like that still. But then after that, it's gone. And so... Is this possible that, okay, you can get infection, you hold off, and then you, and then you can go back to your plans that you had before? I, I think that that's probably possible. And especially now that people are coming up with, I, I think that they're going to have vaccines available very shortly. And if you do that, then probably the risk is actually you know even smaller. And so everybody will get vaccinated. Now, policy about reproduction, well, it's, that's always a, a very sensitive area because there's all kinds of folks and you can you can hear it in the biosecurity field a lot. You can hear it in, in certain communities where they're actually quite worried about this being a form of, a, you know, controlling populations, that sort of thing. Um, you mean like eugenics? Yeah. Um, there's been some talk around that. It's always out there as a possibility, but, you know, I, I you know... I think at this point we can't assume that and we have to just simply say that it, it's intended to be a safety precaution and that each individual has to sort of make their own decisions on this. Unfortunately, it seems like the populations who are at most risk here are the poor pit populations. Um, the economically challenged areas are the ones that are going to be most affected by this. Just because and of the mosquito population? Cases, the mosquito population, the the risk of exposure, the lack of you know uh, medical attention. Also, I mean, you have the religious phenomena. I think it's commendable actually that the Pope said, "Okay, guys, you, you know, for this particular case, you can hold off on your reproduction." 
I, I think that that's, you know, quite progressive simply because in most religions, especially in Catholic religions, it's not acceptable to have birth control. And it's not uncommon in a lot of other places in the world as well. So, you know, I think that it's in the discussions. And I think the problem is because of the, the populations who are affected. I don't know that they even get that message. Some people say that global warming might have something to do with the arrival of Zika in Brazil. Last year was the hottest year on record globally, which is the year that Zika kind of emerged in the country. Is there anything to that, do you think? Well, certainly climate has a great deal of an effect in terms of mosquito populations. So the mosquitoes definitely go where it's warm and moist. When you have that kind of an environment, certainly it will promote spread. And I think we also have to consider that we now live in a very global world where travel is, it's nothing in six hours, you can be halfway across the, you know, across the world practically, and things spread. So I think that having an environment where it's conducive to mosquitoes and mosquitoes populating and being able to travel and having things go along with the, you know, as you travel, you know, insects are going to go with you. I think that that's, that's a real possibility and certainly changing environments. Now, we also have to consider that right now it is primarily in, in one particular family of mosquitoes, but there are other mosquitoes that can actually handle these viruses and that are related to it. And some of those mosquitoes actually have much more cold tolerance in their range. And so if the viruses get into those and they, they mix with the Aedes aegypti, then you're going to get that spread to other areas. And, and you can just see an example of that with another mosquito-borne illness, and that was West Nile. Mm-hmm. West Nile spread like crazy, and now it's everywhere. And it was severe in the beginning, and it's not so severe anymore. But we certainly had that that very rapid spread through a lot of areas. And that's all it will take is for it to, to transmit to another type of mosquito that can also tolerate the virus, and and then it will spread. Would those areas include places in the United States? Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, right now, right now, Aedes aegypti can be in, in Texas area, Florida, all the southern states okay. easily, um, Hawaii, you know, places like that. And then the other one, which is an, also an Aedes mosquito, which sometimes they cross-react with, that other one can go as high as Washington, D.C., you know, Baltimore area, certainly can all, I guess, south of Mississippi, certainly. Who's working on the vaccines for this? Is it an international project or is one country taking the lead? It's multiple cause, because it, 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 this has been around for a while now. So it started spreading and, and started getting a lot of attention, I think, oh, probably about 10 years ago, 2007, 2008. And folks started working on it at that point. And so I think right now they've got a number of efforts. Uh, well, I guess here in the States even, there's there's a number of research labs here in the States that are that are working on vaccines. 
the NIH has issued a number of call for proposals. The Vaccine Research Center has been working on vaccines for all of this family of viruses. And so I imagine that they, I mean, they, they were involved in all the related ones that dengue, the West Nile, chingunya, and, and adding Zika to it seems reasonable. So I think that they've been working very hard at it. So we have folks here in the States as well as in other countries. India, for example, there's an Indian company that has been working on the Zika virus for, I guess, about a year or two now. So I think that they, I think it's moving forward. No one really was really all that concerned about it before they heard about this strong connections, right? And and actually they were they were more worried with the Guillain-Barr syndrome and with dengue and then chikungunya on top of it because all three of them can be harbored in the same mosquito. I don't think that they were nearly as concerned with the Zika before the microcephaly connection. Did you say already what part of the world this virus originated in? Yeah, so it actually started, it was first reported actually in monkeys and stuff in Uganda. And that was in the 40s, 50s. And so the first human infection, and this, so there's two clades or, or groups of uh, viruses that they're related and they cause this, but there's enough divergence in their sequences so that you can tell the difference between them. And one of them is the African strain and the other is the Asian strain. And they've been around all through, they've been spreading equatorially, mostly Africa and then to Asia. So in in Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, they've had that. And in 2007, there were about, well, actually there weren't that many cases of it, even though they had some evidence of it before. But it was really in 2007 where they had a lot of confirmed cases of it. And then it spread to the Americas. And right now it's been spreading very rapidly in the Americas. I wonder what you think about this pattern of kind of an infectious disease outbreak followed by public panic and major mobilization of research resources. Do you think that's an effective system or is there a way we can handle this better? I think it's extremely ineffective because what ends up happening is every time we have a a major outbreak, resources from all the other areas then get shifted over to that. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, you work on that, but basically what, what we're doing is we don't have a sustainable plan in any of those research areas. I mean, it's essentially that, okay, the panic's over now, we can, we can stop funding you, you know, sort of thing. And so, so you get started on working on something and it's not sustained. And I think that that's a very poor way of operating and managing the system because you don't have this always moving forward in all directions to actually find solutions that are not responsive, but rather proactive. And, and, and part of this, or I should say even at the root of all of this, is the limited resources that we have. The NIH just doesn't have enough money to do anything but respond rather than be proactive. And we've always been doing this. I mean, cancer it had a big, huge spurt for a while, and it was a big thing. And then HIV came into play, and you had everything going towards that. And then with 9-11, we had all these resources going to diseases that actually hardly anybody ever got. But because we were scared of them, we, we focused on them. And then we, and then we had another, you know, SARS 
Um, and then we had another, you know, the avian flu, and then we have another Ebola, and then we have, and now we have another Zika and dengue, and we we keep shifting our focus, and we don't actually just try to get the root of what we need to do in preparation for infectious diseases, and trying to think of alternative strategies that will help prepare us for anything that new that comes along, and rather we just dump all resources into something and we start all fresh and new and we kind of neglect then everything that we were doing you know with other areas it bothers me a little bit but i guess it's the nature of the beast that we're dealing with right now i'd like you to say a little more about what a proactive approach would look like in terms of what research directions do you feel like would be more prioritized one of the big things we have to realize first is that the vast majority of the diseases that we have nowadays are associated with coming from other areas besides the United States. Okay, They're in other parts of the world, and we, we're kind of neglecting those areas, and we don't realize that those other areas are economically and even socially not able to deal with the problems that they have. They're in areas which are environmentally more prone to have these kinds of illnesses and diseases and other things, and they are not equipped to control them. They're not equipped to actually uh, reduce the transmission probability because those areas are not getting vaccinated. The disease transmission is not being reduced. So it seems to me that what we need to really do is be more proactive in recognizing the need that we can't just think of ourselves, but we have to think of the other areas. And by thinking of the other areas, we're protecting ourselves. Interesting. Um, so I, I, we have to do that. We also have to help the infrastructure in all these areas. The problem with that is that we don't have enough money to take care of ourselves, much less anywhere else. So, so it's a, it's a conundrum, and you know, until we as a country realize that we're very fortunate that we don't have a lot of these problems, one because of our climate, but two because of our medical system, and and that we are uh, uh, economically much more well off in being able to to fight diseases and get vaccinated when we need to and to handle a lot of these problems. I think we need to realize that we have to put more money into protecting ourselves by protecting others. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, well, I mean, there are some areas and movements in that direction. I know that DNIH has quite a few programs that are directed towards international research, infectious disease research um, centers, for example, that they have a lot of efforts in bolstering their infrastructure in other countries. Um, it's just that it's not sufficient. And unfortunately, we we also are kind of limited in our ability to do that because it, it needs more of a global response. We need to influence other countries to help us out. And we can't do it all. And right now, most other countries are in this position where they economically also are not able to do much more than act like Band-Aids, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it, it's a global problem. It's not just a U.S. problem. 
Thank you. I think we will wrap up here unless do you have any last thing you want to say on this topic? As a whole, we need to think in terms of paying more attention to how these infections spread, what they do, how they work, and that through education and understanding what is going on and and why, that we can actually make more rational decisions Mm -hmm. and we can support the research that's going on to try to combat the situation. But it's not just the research, but it's also a lot of other social economic infrastructure other aspects that we need to also bolster and we need to go at this not in a panic mode all the time but rather in okay we got a situation here let's see what what's the best strategy for moving forward instead of causing all this uproar and panic every time that something like this happens i think we would be a lot better off if we were to educate ourselves on a lot of these issues Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wilson, for talking this through with us. My pleasure, always. (laughs) Once again, we've been speaking with Dr. Brenda Wilson, microbiology professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Thanks so much for tuning in. Join us next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.